0: I believe I'm
1: yeah. This is the Payback Time Podcast,
0: where we interview driven individuals who have achieved or are well on their way to achieving financial freedom. We break down the steps required to generate leveraged income, including but not limited to stock investing, online business, traditional business, and real estate. Each episode
1: breaks down the mistakes made, victories achieved, and the overall journey that led them to where they are today. Sean Tepper is your host, and here is today's episode. Imagine starting a project. The client is excited. You're excited. Everything feels great. Then the client requests changes. Scope creep occurs. Deadlines are pushed, and the project goes off the rails. Then you figure out a way to face those challenges one at a time and eventually climb out of that hole make the client feel good again, and bring the project back on track. Welcome to the world of application development. My next guest has a team of 40 employees where they build custom mobile apps for tech startups on up to Fortune 500 companies. He has a passion for service and providing top-tier value through technology. He and his business partner started this firm soon after graduating from MIT, and they never look back. With a strong financial acumen, they are able to correctly build and scale a service business. Please welcome Chow Hee. Chow, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Hey, doing well. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. All right, why don't you go ahead, kick us off, and tell us your career backstory?
0: Uh, Yeah, so I'm currently the uh, uh, founding partner of um, a software development company out here in Los Angeles. Uh, We do iOS, Android, um, web development uh, for range, for clients ranging from uh, first day startups all the way to Fortune 500 companies. Um, We've been doing this for the better part of a decade. Um, So we have a lot of experience um, building sort of custom software solutions um, for for our clients. Um, Personally, uh, this has been probably the, uh, the majority of my career has been spent um, at this company. Uh, I started it with a business partner um, who was actually a classmate of mine at uh, MIT, uh, which nice. is where I got my undergraduate degree. Um, and yeah, this is, uh, I think, um, in terms of personal finance, this has been, uh, uh, it's gone hand in hand with managing the finances of the business. Um, and so I've learned a lot, you know, I've, I've achieved a lot, um, but uh, ready to uh, yeah, discuss um, kind of how uh, all that uh, plays together, uh, both personal and business.
1: Sure. So let's start at the beginning here. So you and your partner, you went to MIT together, correct? Yeah. And did you start this business while you were in school, or did you start after you graduated?
0: It was effectively right after we graduated. I, we sure. both had sort of very short hiatuses at um, either <laughs> I spent a year at a consulting firm, like a big four consulting firm. I, <gasps> I was at a startup for a year, but that year was actually partially um, is actually while I was in school. So. Pretty much, you can consider this as the majority of our careers for us. Yeah,
1: good for you. Sounds like you uh, you dipped your toes in the water of the corporate world, and we're like, hey, it doesn't work for me. I'm I'm <laughs> going to create my own thing.
0: Yeah, that working for yourself has definitely been our uh, that's been our speed for sure. Yeah,
1: I give you credit. Um, I worked for somebody one year after school, and then I started a, a practice that did software engineering, and, and we did some other marketing services. I did that through the Recession, and it was by no means uh, a successful operation. It was really difficult to build that business through the recession. Um, fortunately, that that sold, and then um, I moved on to do other work since. But um, one thing I learned is when you get into business on your own, like you, I mean, you hit the ground running. You got to learn how to sell got to learn how to market operations. If you're hiring staff, I mean, that was another thing. I, I mean, you had to learn kind of everything on the fly. So can you tell us about that process? Like you're an IT, you're a tech guy. Obviously that's what you went to school for, but jumping into this business, what were some of the challenges you had to overcome right away?
0: Yeah. You know, so I mean, I, the, the mental image of my partner and I you know, sitting on the floor of his, new condo a a new apartment out in la he had just moved here um and you know the the sort of mental image is is still very fresh in my mind of sort of two young guys that had by happenstance i mean our first client we we literally got that lead because it just fell into our laps you know we weren't thinking we would start a business we weren't thinking we would and and so i certainly credit that luck a lot for all this a decent amount of success we've had we have been in the right place at the right time like you just said you know um, we were doing this as apps were becoming essentially the phrase, there's an app for that was coming into the lexicon. Right. And so now every business is like, well, I'm going to fall behind if I don't have an app. Um, and so, yeah, we, I mean, we certainly, I think if I think back to it, you know, we kind of were in the right place at the right time. We also did had a fair amount of, um, I think just learning to do that. I, you know, then I I credit each other for helping each other essentially get through the uncertainty of, Mm -hmm. you know, us sitting there looking at a blank piece of paper going, well, we just promised the client we have a fully fleshed plan for how we're going to get their app to the app store in two months. And we just have no idea how this is going to happen, right? We've, we've both experienced a little bit of it. You know, I was a part of an app development team uh, at that large company that you referred to. Um, But, you know, I'd certainly never done the full end-to-end. Someone else managed the marketing. Someone else managed the sort of post-launch support. How do you build a customer service team? I mean, all that stuff was foreign to me. And, you know, we kind of had, we promised the world to this client. And so, I mean, I think a lot of it, when I think back on it, it was sort of almost naïve. Um, just, we were we, the naive, like confidence that we would be able to figure it out. Yeah. Um, now over the, over the years, that's obviously served us very well, um, with any sort of new thing that we have to figure out how to do, or, or if, you know, a client asks for something that, you know, we, we need to then figure out how to achieve. Um, I certainly, I, I think the naivete has maybe worn off to now where we, we do tend to rely a little bit more on stuff that we know we're good at. Um, but a, certain, a little bit of that kind of, you know, over like the sort of just slightly over the top confidence, um, it'll help you both sell the project and also deliver it. Because, um, you know, if you've done this before, if you've kind of reached for the stars before um, and delivered on it, um, it just it gives you the confidence that next time you're going to be able to succeed and figure yep. out what you need to do.
1: No, I, I, I like that. That reminds me of when I had that business because there's times like a customer would ask, hey, can you do this? And you're right away, your knee-jerk reaction is yes. Mm-hmm. Like you don't know how you're going to do it, but you have the intuition and the ability to use Google, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or at yeah. least reach out to a network of people to make sure you can deliver on that. But the more you do that, or in my case, the more I did that, the more confidence I became. So it sounds like you, you guys are very good at doing that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So, did both of you go to MIT for like information technology, or what was your specific
0: degree in? Uh, we both had a relatively large concentration in computer science. Yep. Neither of us were actually computer science majors, but um, uh, so Nick, uh, Nick Swenson, my business partner, he um, he focused more on biomedical with a concentration in computer science. So easy stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was mostly like using computers to design. Um, you know, medical treatments, design drugs, um, that sort of sure. thing. Uh, for me, it was m- mechanical. Like, so let's call it robotics. Um, so yes, again, there was a sort of computer science aspect of you have to create the programs, but you also have to create the actual mechanical you know, robots, whether it's the, the the motors, the sort of um, all of the actual structures. Um, and that played into sort of uh, our kind of, our middle ground was this software piece and so obviously Mm -hmm. business together it was the part that we understood the most we've been able to bring in other parts of what we do uh, what what our education was um like for example we working we're working with a decent number of clients nowadays in both medicine so you know like companies that are making medical apps but also companies that are you know using that sort of mechanical like the real world the 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 sort of bridge between software and hardware internet of things is a big topic to use actual physical hardware chips, um, to whether it's smart lights, whether it's, um, you know, door locks, that sort of thing. A number of our projects are in the IOT space. Um, and so we've been able to pull a little bit of that together. Um, but obviously the, the sort of convergence of it is that yes, software has been, um, the, the common language.
1: No, I give you both credit. Uh, Great education background and technical background. That's, that's impressive. Um, When you started the business together, did you kind of determine like, Hey, I'm going to be the guy that's focusing on this task or or this uh, programming language, or these responsibilities, or do you kind of overlap a little bit? Like, how did you structure that?
0: So I actually think that for us, that, that delineation happened relatively naturally. Um, Mm -hmm. Nick is Nick and I both, we are very alike in many ways, but we're also very different in many ways. Um, and so obviously those differences helped decide things like um, you know, who's gonna be the bookkeeper at first, who's gonna be the CFO and who's gonna be more the CTO. Um, and so I, I, over time, those roles also did evolve as you know. I, sure. Like to give you an example, I, at first I had very little concept of how to run the finances of a business um, Nick had come from, you know, he'd done that year at Bain. Um, and so he did have a little bit of that sort of, you know, financial, um, mind. And so he, you know, he kind of, at first just took care of it, um, as time went on. And as I, as I sort of became interested in it a little bit more, um, it, the roles did sort of move around and especially as we grew, um, you know, wherever there would be need, uh, whether it was in sales, whether it was in human resources, obviously new places, then we had to reshuffle our sort of responsibilities. But I would say that, you know, if I think back to the very first time we ever really split up work, it really just was a, what do you want to do? What what, what can I do? What are we good at? Um, It wasn't necessarily much of a, um, we didn't have to necessarily put a a formal title on it. It was just, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that need to get done. And if you're better at this than me, and you have the time to do it, then go for it. I mean, I, I don't think there was really any ego or sort of, and that, that was obviously really nice because we had already had this friendship to, to fall back yep. on. Um, uh, and I think that helped a lot.
1: Absolutely. What you guys have found is actually really hard to achieve because I've been exposed to so many people and so many different partnerships that kind of go south because of there's that uh, contention on, Hey, you're working on this while well, I was supposed to do that. Or like, why are you looking over my shoulder while I, while I do this? Um, And it just seemed like a natural progression into, Hey, I'm strong at this. You're strong at that. Let's go. Mm -hmm. And you can just work in parallel there. That's great. Um, I'm going to start to talk about your team a little bit. So it was YouTube from the beginning. How long did it take
0: to add your first employee? So we actually added our first quote unquote employee um, pretty late in the process. We, um, Mm -hmm. the very first summer, this was maybe two or three months after we had incorporated Uh, We brought a couple of MIT undergrads out to LA to sort of do a summer internship. Um, I mean, that was the world that we understood, you know, as undergrads ourselves, we've done internships all over the place that was, um, you know, interns, uh, a lot of times they're in it partially for the work, but also partially just for the experience, right? I mean, summer school is, I mean, school at MIT is admittedly just insanely difficult. Yeah. Uh, and so you just kind of, you know, the, the beaches in LA seemed like a great place for a lot of these kids. And so we pretty quickly found three interns to come out from, um, from the East Coast. Um, that summer, I think, you know, obviously we didn't, they were undergrads, so they had to go back to school. Um, our first official employee, I think, was maybe a couple months after that. Okay. Um, I think pretty quickly we found out that being the two billable resources and the sort of engineering um, actually doing the engineering, uh, meant that we had very little time to do sort of everything else involved with running a business. Um, and so pretty quickly we, we decided, hey, we need to bring in some help, um, both on the engineering side, but also on the sort of you know company building side, right? Like yes. that's that's done this before. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think within a year or two, we've gotten to maybe call it nine or 10 people.
1: Let's take a quick commercial break. Do you feel like stock investing is too confusing, too time-consuming, or too risky? It doesn't have to be. Ticker gives you the power to manage your own investments, reduce risk, and beat the market along the way. In fact, Ticker has proven to beat the market every year for 20 years. From 1999 through 2019, the lowest annual return was 10%, and the highest annual return was 96%. Compare that to the market average of 6%. If you ever considered investing on your own but don't know where to start, Ticker is your solution. Ticker safely guides you through your investment journey by finding on-sale stocks and showing you why those stocks are on sale, giving you the confidence that you're making a wise investment. Before Ticker launched, I back-tested it through the 2008 recession. Here are those surprising results. In 2008, the S&P 500 dropped by 38%. Ticker was up 24%. In 2009, the S&P 500 went up by 23%. Ticker was up 72%. And in 2010, the S&P 500 went up by 12%. Ticker was up 96%. That's the moment when I said, I can't keep this platform for myself. I need to share it with others. If you're interested, go ahead and get started with a free trial. No credit card required. Visit ticker.pro. That's T-Y-K-R.pro. Again, ticker. Dot pro. Impressive growth. Um, what was the structure like? Was it like maybe 20%, 30% salespeople, and the other percentage uh engineering staff? How did that break down?
0: Sales is interesting. Sales actually came on actually pretty late. So okay. um, in fact, at first we prided ourselves on, on being almost a hundred percent engineered. So um the sort of company building part of it was almost it was a we, we tried to keep that as lean as possible. I think the word "lean" was used a lot, um, and it was relatively successful. I think partially because, as business owners, we also you know were doing a lot of that subconsciously. You know, we were drafting contracts, we were recruiting, um, you know, taking interviews. Stuff that's you know, as a sort of billable resource, may not be worth your time in a large organization to do. And you have you know defined departments: recruiting, operations, HR. Um, that we just sort of handled a lot of that as founders at first. Um, so I would say the first couple of years, um, our, our, our mantra was like, let's stay as lean as possible. Um, I think there was a little bit of a shift as we sort of hit a ceiling of growth. I mean, the obvious founder dependency issue came in where um, there just weren't enough hours in the day for the founders to to keep doing all these things, but also grow the, grow the company. Um, so we started, I think we started bringing on uh, sort of sales, let's call it salespeople, um, maybe two or three years into the history of the company. And that's when actually things really started to take off. Um, we, we, we saw a huge amount of growth after that. Um, what year was this approximately? This would have been 2016.
1: Okay, about halfway through your tenure.
0: 2016, yeah. yeah. Um, and we, you know, we started pushing a decent amount to bring on new, more clients, uh, more simultaneous clients, Um, we hired a couple of not really middle managers, but managers that were in the sense of like, you know, they would be also billable resources and able to sort of run their own projects, um, as opposed to every, every project needing to have sort of direct day in and day out touches from the uh, the founders. Um, so in, I would say in the sort of years three through four, we, we, you know, continue to more than double every year. Um, to the point where we got, yeah, I mean, by let's call it like a year and a half ago, we were at almost 40 full-time employees. Wow. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that that was sort of the trajectory that we, uh, that we followed, but sales didn't really come in until around halfway through. Got it. Okay. Good for you. Um, yeah,
1: I was going to ask how big your team is. That's impressive growth. And are they all based in LA? For the most part, yes. Wow. Okay. So you're not really leveraging offshore talent.
0: Oh, we're, we're playing around with it a little bit right now, but um, okay. for the most part, you know, our, our clients pay for quality. Um, yes. And that's, uh, that it's, you know, you can still find very skilled engineers overseas, but one of the issues is that um, we're, we're sort of playing around with multiple models. We have a couple of projects where everyone is based in Los Angeles, uh, even the, you know, sort the QA people are, are in Los Angeles. Um, obviously the cost of living here is much, much higher than when you go overseas. Um, and so, you know, the, the bill rates and stuff are, are a commensurate level. Um, we're playing around with a little bit more of trying to, you know, reduce costs for our clients by taking certain roles and identifying those as like, um, able to be done overseas with a certain level of guidance. So, um, we're, we're actually now starting to recruit and, um, we just actually uh, brought on a third um, MIT, uh, sort of like this. Uh, actually, the, the colleague we have right now, um, he was at MIT while we were there, um, a year, in fact, a year before us. Um, but a lot of, we just brought him on because what we've started to prove is that as you take sort of really, really talented uh, managers and architects, they will actually be able to, um, you know, sort of exhibit that rising tide lifts all boats, um, and essentially rise, raise everyone else around them up. Yep. Uh, be able to, you know, lay out paths for lower skilled labor. Um, so we're playing around with that a little bit. It's, it's, you know, it, it, it's working really well. Um, but we haven't necessarily implemented it across all of our projects yet just because for the longest time, you know, our value proposition was that, you know, you can't, you can't ship this overseas. And so now if we're going to do that, we have to do it in a way that's very, very deliberate and that we don't take any necessary risks there.
1: Yeah. With a lot of the companies I've worked with, um, like we've, we've done work with a lot of big management consulting firms like Deloitte and Accenture. And usually they will present options like, Hey, here are your rate cards for only us talent, but here's a rate card for a mix. So blended us blended, um, you know, from India or um, sometimes, um, Somewhere in there in Asia, uh, just to give that option to lower costs overall. So it's it, hey, if the big guys are doing it, it's kind of like the green light to you. Sure, you could
0: probably do it too, right? Yeah, and I mean for different clients, it, you know, like you're right, it, the the option is actually really important because certain clients, you know, they're like, I, I need to be able to come to your office and sit down and look the engineer in the face as he's writing code. And if you know they're paying for that level of service, then by all means, we will charge you. Um, mm-hmm put that team together. Uh, but, you know, for, for some clients, if you sort of the first the first couple of years, if that was the only thing we were offering, we were missing out on the clients that would say, you know, it doesn't actually matter too much to me where the engineers are. I'm never going to come to your office anyway. Um, I just care that the work is done to spec, right? And yep. um, if, if we can do it at the same um, sort of quality, but lower cost for everyone, right? In terms of... Um, able to uh, get the, the thing done. Um, and sometimes it would be the difference between winning or losing the deal. And so sure. we kind of lost enough deals in that region where we were like, hang on a minute, like, is there is there actually a way to do this such that we're not right. um, you know, pigeonholing ourselves?
1: Right. I found if you do go overseas, you can get good quality, but the flip side is from a, a project management and a scrum master standpoint, it's it's a lot more work from whatever role you put in that place is going to require more effort from them To Oh yeah,
0: definitely. I mean, that's, that was what I was sort of alluding to is it's now taking a very, very high level of, of manager to Mm -hmm. not just manage the scrum, like the actual sort of moving pieces of paper around on the board, but also the content of what is being done, right? Totally. It's, it's one thing to, to just give someone a screen and say, Hey, you know, this is what the screen looks like. Just build the screen. It's another thing to, um, to be able to have someone do the same level of, of work that is extensible, it's robust, it handles all the edge cases, it, it not just looks beautiful when it's static, but also when it's animated. Yep. Um, all of the sort of in reading between the lines, um, you used to be able to, I mean, if you have an onshore senior developer, they do all that for you. But now you're essentially almost assuming that the resource isn't going to do that and that you have to lay out everything. Um, you have to be extra specific. And obviously, that's a much taller uh, burden on the manager. Yes. Uh, but that's why we're paying a whole lot more for these managers
1: now. It, exactly. Right. You got it. Let's dive into the, the timelines of your average projects. Knowing that you have about 40 employees today, right? You probably have some large projects that extend months, if not a year, like can you give us a low end? What is the lowest timeline you kind of work on and the highest timeline you
0: have right now for project length? So the shortest project, we think that, um, I mean, it, it, it can even be as like sort of short as just a handful of weeks for staff augmentation. Mm-hmm. Um, but our sort of sweet spot is a, you know, a hand, let's call it like two to four month um, build outs. For with a relatively large team. Um, So it usually ends up being like, if we need to build like a not just an MVP where like the MVP is, is like a black and white and like, uh, you know, not styled at all. Uh, We generally like to do relatively moderately long engagements just because that gives I think gives everyone a chance to um, reflect on the checkpoints and the milestones and um, you know, actually get to a point where everyone's proud of the deliverable and not just sort of seeing it as a means to another end. Um, so for us, um, yeah, our typical projects, I mean, the, the sort of sweet spot is, is, isn't that, you know, sure. several, we do have clients that will be there for, um, you know, years. Uh, and I think when it gets beyond the initial several months is when really that's when, uh, in fact, that that's the goal. That is always to get beyond that first couple of months um, and into a, what we call evolution phase, where lots of things about the engagement involve, not just the sort of you know definition of scope and um, sort of delivery of milestones, um, but uh, it, it extends beyond that to the billing behavior, to the sort of strategic um, mm-hmm. resources that we'll place on the project. Uh, time that we'll burn on our end to come up with sort of neat concepts um, and really, you know, kind of dig in and and make it our own as opposed to just, you know, something that we're building for someone else. Um, And, uh, you know, a number of our clients that have been with us for years, uh, at this point, you know, they almost consider us just an extended part of their team. Yep. Um, That's, I mean, that's always the goal in in sort of client services is to get to the point where, um, you know, it's a, it's a, we, not you and I, uh, or you and us. Right. Um, So. Yeah, it, it does range a spectrum, but that's that's kind of the the goal is to get to that.
1: Absolutely, I always look at that from a service business perspective is is to obtain clients that you're almost on a, you know, a reoccurring business model. Like every month, they're having they're sending you work enhancements, features they want added, and that's all you do. You just crank.
0: Mm-hmm. Turn them around.
1: Um, I'd like to transition into your pricing strategy a little bit. Do you charge like a project fee or an hourly fee and you break that up uh, like uh, across months? So it's a little more di- digestible for your customers. Like how do you charge your customers? Uh,
0: so the only, I would say the only hard and fast rule is that we bill for our time and mm-hmm. we bill every month for our time. Um, yeah, there's very little exceptions to that. But other than that, it actually is pretty free reign. I mean, some projects we will charge a varying level of deposit depending on whether, you know, the requirements of that project um, force us to, you know, hire a bunch of people that, you know, we don't have a sort of necessarily already the skills in-house um, or whether it's just, you know, a high risk project. And that's yep. you know, depending on whether or not they raise money, they may not be able to pay the rest of the bill or not um so i think the deposit is uh that that's something that's highly variable um the other thing is yeah i mean the, the actually it's actually as you were talking about earlier with the rate cards um our i mean our, our rates are also you know highly dependent on what kind of resources we put towards the project um and uh generally speaking from client to client they they're relatively similar um, we don't Usually raise our rates um, across the board. We'll try to keep you know a, a, certain clients at their same rates for as long as we possibly can, uh, while the numbers still work. Sure. Um, but yeah. No. Uh, pricing is an interesting thing. It we've we've come a long way since the very first um, sort of rate card we ever, or the very first SOW we ever sent any client. We just had a flat amount per week, and mm-hmm. that was just. I I, I mean, I think that was just all we knew at the time was just we just charge a certain amount per week for the resource, which, um, you know, there were a lot of it actually at first simplified the operations a lot because you just I mean, you're literally the granularity is just a number of weeks, you know, easy to do an entire month's um, invoicing just in your head like how many resources worked on this, how many weeks. Um, Obviously, that, you know, wasn't sustainable um, as we had partial resources for um you know, partial numbers of weeks um as it got to the point where different resources had such wildly varying rates and maybe even different rates for different tasks that um you know just we needed a, a little bit more um granular control over that and that's when we started to actually build rate cards for you know hourly rates for each role. Um but that, you know, the the kind of um Doing that was, mm-hmm. uh, it, it introduced its own overhead, so um, sure. it's, uh, it's always about finding balance.
1: Now, do you try to build time and materials or a fixed bid?
0: For the most part, it is time and materials. Good for um, you. What we try to do with certain clients is if they, um, if they're adamant that something has to be done under a certain budget, so we call it like an NTE, uh, not to exceed, um, sure. it is time and materials, But we also have an NTE figure in mind. So, um, you know, if a lot of times this will happen with those sort of ongoing clients where they say they have a set budget per month and that's it. And if you know something that they want done um, is not able to be done within that budget, then we will, you know, we'll inform them of such and we will probably Mm -hmm. advise them, hey, you know, like we can either dumb this down a little bit or simplify it, or what we can do is spread it out over the course of multiple months. Um, but yeah, I I'd say that's a, that's relatively rare. Most of the time it's a, just a pure team model.
1: That's, that's a smart billing model. I really like the do not exceed like that. Uh, you could call it like a de-risking trigger. <laughs> so they, you're not going to run up a tab that just runs into infinity. It's like, Hey, here's your limit. And we
0: will notify you
1: beforehand. That's smart.
0: Well, I think, I mean, yes, it's good for everyone in that it's obviously great for us because it allows us to plan. Um, And also it avoids for us as a sort of vendor, it avoids that awkward situation where, you know, you, you, you keep getting these requests from the clients and you just in the back of your mind, you know, that this is going to just absolutely shock them. You know, like it, it, uh, and so then you're, you're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place where, you're continually having to say yes to these requests and knowing that, you know, like you don't like saying no, but you also are just, just absolutely um, dreading the ultimate, the ultimate, you know, like sort of Mm -hmm. showdown, end up sending them the invoice and then there's the sort of, you know, angry response or angry phone call. Um, So it helps us. And then obviously for the client side, it also helps them plan. It also helps them, you know, just get a a continuous feedback. I mean, it, it adds a little bit of overhead and that's, but I think that's okay um, yep. for everyone to be on the same page is, is certainly worth that extra little overhead.
1: All those little nuances to successfully grow a service business. That's a, uh, that's a smart play. Um, I'd like to go into a little bit your average project price tag, like from the low end to the high end. Can you reveal that?
0: Um, I can give you ballpark. So yeah. um, usually on the low end, it'll be somewhere in the like just low six figures. Like okay. very very low six figures, um, and yeah, I mean the, on the high end we 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 pretty regularly do um, builds in the you know five four or five hundred six hundred thousand dollar range. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays that's especially for like a fully fledged front end back end all the I, I, all the mobile platforms um, website sort of essentially you can call it like a turnkey like startup like if you wanted to build an yeah. app. Um, that's a pretty reasonable sort of like back of the envelope. Um, you can generally speaking, that's if someone asked me on the street how much does it cost to get an app out there? That's the number that I would quote. Um, Got it. but I mean, it even goes up from there, right? Like, so there, there'll be certain clients that that will only be very, that'll, that'll be the first checkpoint of like a multi. Then after that, every month they will be a, for 70 or a hundred thousand, um, mm-hmm. for a full, basically a full-time team to keep tabs on everything. But also continue pushing forward um, on, on all fronts, on front end, on back end stability, on um, ultimate, you know, on the sort of server scalability, um, putting analytics in to figure out, you know, how the users are using the app and yep. sort of feed that business intelligence right back into the design um, of the app. Uh, continuing to support other parts of the uh, enterprise, uh, whether it's you like, know warehouse operations, whether it's mark digital marketing. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's a, that's great. It does
1: range the whole spectrum. Yep. And the size of your businesses, you kind of listed it in the beginning a little bit, but can you kind of give a range on um, revenues? But I'm sure there's a lot of cases you're working with tech startups that are pre-revenue, but they've raised funds. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. Revenue is like a very wild. Uh, it's, I mean, it, 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 some of our like projects, I mean, like there's no way to correlate the size of project with the revenue that they're making. I mean, Got we it. have certain clients that are zero revenue, but they spend a million dollars a year on these, uh, on this project, yep. uh, on a prorated amount. Uh, and then we also have a four, Fortune 500 company that came to us for the tiniest of projects, right? So, it sure. wildly varies.
1: Yes, totally. Okay, no, that gives great perspective here. Now, when you build out your apps, you're, I'm assuming you're or trying to sell you've got apple as well as android and then do you offer the um like the web interface back end as well
0: oh yeah everything so usually when you talk about hey i want it, like um one of the classic examples i'll give is um this is maybe five five or so years ago when everyone and their mother decided that they had an idea for a social media app um uh that you know everyone kind of then decides okay so just build this just build the app and like People will like use it because like, this is like a special app that if I like things a lot, then I'll get like points and I can redeem those points for like rewards or something. Um, Or if like a lot of people like my stuff, then I'll be able to like monetize that or whatever. Um, That was a pretty common theme. Um, I I mean, I think certainly there were a lot of successes uh, as you even see today with the Instagrams and the TikTok. I mean, Instagram started as a sort of like, just like sort of offshoot of this idea that you can share pictures on the internet, right? And yep. now it's essentially become Facebook's most profitable business. Um, and so I think there was a lot of attention around this around this time towards people that wanted to do social media apps. And they just came to us saying, hey, you know, just like build the app, right? And then launch it on the app store and then I'll just make a billion dollars off of that. Um, what they didn't realize is that, you know, yes, there's an app that you, that you release in the store, but then there's also all kinds of back, you know, I mean, you have to have content moderation, you have to have the ability to, you know, um, when users flag posts, you, someone has to actually go and look at them. Yep. Um, and then what's what's more is that, you know, especially if you're going to add an e-commerce uh, component to this, where, you know, you want to deliver physical goods or even have currency flowing through this app, that there's, you know, there's a relatively large operations um, that, you know, a lot of it then has to be Built out, uh, whether it's admin panels, whether it's just you know training, even mm-hmm. for warehouse, like I was talking about earlier, warehouse employees, um, stuff that doesn't really exactly um, come to the surface immediately. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it for us as well. The first, I would say, the first couple times we did this, um, you know, we would we would we would have to be like staying one step ahead of the client and being like, hey, you know, like if we were to do this, what's the next step? Like, what actually will we end up needing and sort of training ourselves to do that so that when the client ultimately came across that road, road bump, sure. they'd be like, hey, you know, hey, we need some advice on how to do warehouse management. And then we would be able to step right in and say, that's how we do it. Awesome, Definitely. okay. Can you tell the audience, what does your ideal customer look like? That's a good question. Um, so the ideal, to, to us, the answer we've always given to that, the ideal customer is one that's, um, this sounds really lame, but the, it's the one that creates the long-term partnership. Um, In almost every way, ideal means, you know, it it obviously financially makes, it's a lot greater for us if we spend customer acquisition costs once and they just stay with us for years and years or just never leave. Um, That's great for us Uh, Mm -hmm. on a financial basis. um, On a stability as well, uh, there's maybe some sort of downsides in that if you have a customer that stays with you too long, or not too long, but just the longer they stay that you have some people that just, you know, certain resources on the project might go, I'm just bored of this. I don't want to work on this anymore. You have to deal with that. But that's actually, that's like a, that's a good problem to have. That kind of continuing to stay with you, that you have a reliable source of revenue, a reliable just amount of work to do to keep people busy. Um, And also for us, you know, the speaking about it from a sort of like results standpoint, um, the longer you have, you also are able to meaningfully impact the, the, the outcome in a better and better and better way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not just, you, you don't just have one crack at making the efficiency good or um, getting the design right. It means that month over month, year over year, you're always looking at, have we made all the right decisions? Are, is there any place that we can improve this? And so, the, I mean, the results speak for themselves. The longer these engagements go, Um, the better the results are. And that's just, just because over time, I mean, time will, time will obviously more, the more time you put into it, the the more um, improvements you're going to uncover.
1: Sure. On the flip side of that equation, are there any like red flags in the prospecting process that kind of persuade you not to work with a prospect? Like you pretty much say like, Hey, great to Hear your business model and you hear what your goals are, but this is just not going to be a good fit
0: for us. You ever had those moments? Absolutely. Um, red flags during the the sales process is a um, it's a, unfortunately it, it, it's it's become all too common nowadays. Like the the the, the I was sort of joking about this um, this concept of you know people that just come to us saying hey just build us a social media app and we'll make a billion dollars. I I was sort of kidding, but like no, actually it happens. Not. It happens. Yes, people come to us. Come to you. And I think. What it ends up, what ends up happening is that I think the best way to encompass this sort of red flag is just a relative lack of either understanding or of just like common sense around what's feasible and what's not. And right. so, you know, it, it, clearly the feasibility of just, you know, deciding that your idea is going to be the next billion dollar company. Is it feasible? Yes. It's, it's been done before, but is it probable? it's also not probable. Right. And so when, when people come to you with the, with this concept that, you know, like this is going to absolutely make a billion dollars that's a sort of disconnect. And that, that red flag in and of itself is just, there's a disconnect between what they're expecting and what you, what you're expecting. And so it's not just, you know, ultimate exit valuation. It comes down to even just as as mundane of something as like, um, how much it will cost to maintain this afterwards, right? Um, they think they write you a check for, I mean, we literally, there have been companies that are, pe- let's call them like individuals, usually mm-hmm. companies are a little bit better about this, but there'll be individuals that come in and say, all right, I'll write you a check for, you know, very gung-ho, um, you know, you put a number in front of them, they're like, oh, I can pay a half a million bucks for this, like, yes, great, write you a check. And then After half a million bucks, then when, you know, you say, okay, like now we need to set up a support system, we need to set up, you know, analytics and stuff. And they go like, well, what do you mean? How, what do you mean? I just paid you half a million bucks. Um, And so that sort of disconnect between like what's reasonable and what's, you know, Mm -hmm. reality and like sort of the world they're living in. Um, that's probably the largest red flag. I'd
1: say. I had so much frustration with that. It's like, you know, when you build a home after the home is built, it requires zero maintenance for the next 30 years, right? right. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. Said <laughs> so no one ever.
1: Um, and, and, and that is just so like foreign for people to think like, oh, so the software is live and it needs to be maintained. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I it, I would love to be a fly on the, a wall in those conversations and just hear what you have to say. <laughs> Delicately, of course.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Delicate is the name of the game there. Yes, yes. But but you have to be firm as well, so it's delicately firm. Yeah. Um, Standing your ground, right? You can't give up, because as soon as you give an inch, they take a foot.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. Yep. I have to ask this question. You've got a great team in place. You're, You're building top tier mobile apps, right? Are you guys like thinking about building some kind of product for yourself, like some kind of SaaS or some kind of app? Is that, I'm sure that's crossed your mind.
0: Um, Yes, it has. Um, And it's, I would say it it is always sort of somewhere on the list of like, gosh, if we had time to do Mm -hmm. this, then we would, that we would. Um, I'd say sitting here talking to you today, um, it's not the highest on our list of priorities. Um, Okay. especially with COVID um, just are, you know, we have been relatively busy through all of this. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, most businesses, it, like we're sort of seeing another round of what 2013 and 2014 was. Every business needs to go online businesses that, you know, otherwise, yep. if they don't, they're, they're sort of, they're, they're, they're going to not make it. Um, so we, we've been relatively busy and all that. And I think for us um, servicing the clients that we do have and that ones that, you know, we, I um, you know, think we can make a, a lot of times when businesses come to you, you know, they are, they're coming to you with a need and, you know, to be mm-hmm. able to fill a need is it's not just about making money off of them. You know, it's in fact, most of the time, you know, you don't even see that as the goal that there are real businesses that, you know, are employ real people that will suffer if, you know, we don't help them out. And, um, and that, you know, that sounds magnanimous, but it is, it, it does come and come to play. Sure. And so we weigh that against, um, oh yeah, we, hey, you know, we could put a whole bunch of our resources into building a SaaS platform to you know, mm-hmm. developers' lives 5% easier. I mean, will that, does that then create passive income in the long term? Maybe. I mean, it, it, it's, it's probably a, lo- a more feasible path to early retirement than any of the other things that we're doing. But sure. is it really rewarding right now? Not as much as, you know, trying to businesses and helping them survive.
1: Let's take a quick commercial break. Have you ever lost money in the stock market? You either listened to someone you know, heard a comment on the news, or tried to follow a trend. Yeah, I think we've all been there. Most people lose money in the stock market because they make decisions based on emotions. What if you could remove emotions from investing? What if you could make consistent returns in the stock market based solely on logic? And what if there's a software that handled that logic for you? Introducing Ticker, a platform that helps you reduce risk, save money, and invest confidently. Before Ticker launched, it was backtested through the 2008 recession. Here are the surprising results In 2008, the market dropped by 38%. Ticker was up 24%. In 2009, the market went up by 23%. Ticker was up 72%. And in 2010, the market went up by 12%. Ticker was up 96%. I then back-tested Ticker from 1999 through 2019, and Ticker has proven to beat the market every year. The lowest return was 10%, and the highest return was 96%. Get started today with a free trial. Visit ticker.pro. That's T-Y-K-R dot pro. Again, ticker pro. Good for you. That's that's hard to achieve in the service business. I was never able to get there when I had my own service business, and it and there was a merger in 2010. And I was I was thankful to separate myself from it. It was it was hard for me to to run a service business just because um, my motivation was always around helping the business owner, like increase cash flow and profit margins. And in many cases, the customer was not aligned with that. They wanted to do other things and in, in order to empathize with the owner that would that was difficult for me but for you guys to do that um, you're thinking at a deeper level and thinking about their employees and whatnot that's that's pretty amazing not saying i didn't do that it's just my
0: focus at the time was elsewhere well i mean i think the other the other part of the question that you asked actually now that i think about it you know the other one of the one of the sort of barriers to throwing resources at a um, at an effort like, you know, building a SaaS platform is mm-hmm. it's also just, a, it's a different behavior. It's, it's a very different business activity than what we're used to. Um, and, you know, I, it, it sounds weird to say that because we tout that, you know, we're, we're able, we're able to come and help other businesses a lot, but um, uh, with every, and we help them with every sort of uh, aspect of, of, of sort of building and growing that their own business. Um, that it sounds weird to say that, you know, like, okay, so now doing something for ourselves is a very different activity, but practically speaking, it is, it is, mm-hmm. it's not the same as a sort of on-demand services, um, you know, model where our resources and our sort of like financial modeling is all based on a relatively sort of moderately stable, um, you know, income stream and sort of, you know, uh, all the sort of margins, that are associated with, you know, paying a resource to have you know X utilization, um, all that sort of modeling and stuff, the way that our business is structured, I suppose, um, you know, both financially and also operationally, just, it doesn't lend itself that well to then immediately say, hey, you know, we're going to essentially turn into a startup. We're basically going to build right. a product from the ground up. Um, and I think the, the sort of, the only way to make that successful is to essentially cleave off a certain part of the business. And say, okay, yes. You're, you're no longer a consulting arm. Like you shouldn't think like a consultant. You shouldn't manage your time like a consultant. You should think and manage your time like a startup. And you know, yep. you've got crappy founder, you've got the sort of people that are working hundred hours a week churning out, you know, like build after build. Um, that's the sort of, that level of commitment and sort of energy is what you need, which is, not to say that there's no energy or commitment in consulting, but it's just, mm-hmm. it's, like a it's different. Yeah.
1: The companies that I found do it, they, they would spin off and you're probably familiar with the term like a strike team or tiger team that is completely dedicated to creating new products. And they're going to be, there's the expectation that they're probably not going to make money for like a year to 18 months in some yeah. cases. Right. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and you're just spending money on those resources. It could be two, three engineers or whatever maybe a marketing person in there too. And it's like, you, you set that expectation and then budget with the hopes to build something, obviously that finds product market fit. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, this gives a, me a really great idea of your, your business model. I'm going to let you promote it at the end of the episode, but you mentioned before we jumped on the call, your
0: interest in personal finance. Um, you talk about that a little bit? The, if we think back to where we sort of other segments started with, um, you know, kind of founding a business with, and we were pretty young. I mean, I think I was 24. I was 23 actually at the time that this business was started. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of been financially independent for call it like college was like, maybe I was half independent, right? Like my, my parents paid for uh, mm-hmm. a certain amount of, of tuition and room and board. And then, you know, if it was spending money, I would have to do that myself. Um, so pretty much starting this business actually coincided with the first time that I essentially was financially fully independent. I made all the money that I needed for rent and yep. uh, you know, entertainment and stuff. Um, and so in a lot of ways, starting this business and, and growing this business is actually, it's been a parallel of my personal journey um, to towards you know full financial independence. Um, and in fact, what I will say is that I've learned a lot um, and the implied suggestion there was that I was kind of totally clueless when I started out, <laughs> as we all are at a young age. Um, and you know, like it, to me, I'm a numbers guy, right? And even as a numbers guy, um, it just a lot of stuff to me um, really kind of kicked me in the teeth when they, you know, reared their ugly heads, right? So mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, I see I the best to me at the in the very beginning, it was it was about inflows and outflows. And as long as inflows are more than outflows, you're good. And that to me was like, yes, that makes sense, obviously. Um, but what I didn't, I think what I didn't recognize as much, and this is what I'm really, really thankful for that my business partner, you know, kind of, uh, there was maybe the most testy of conversations we ever had in the very beginning was around, you know, like, okay, you know, we've got a business, it's making this much money. Um, and how much do we need to keep in in it to keep things going? Um, And sort of we were on, I, you know, I think I instinctively knew that we needed to keep a fair bit of cash in the business. Um, But I also, you know, greedily was like, well, I've got like toys to buy. Like I want to, I want to convert. You're in your twenties. What the heck? Um, (laughs) And yeah. And so, you know, like effectively we sort of, I wouldn't even say we met somewhere in the middle. We basically just, I essentially gave in because my business partner was adamant that like, look, things are going to happen. We're going to need to grow. That's going to require a cap Like we're going to have AR issues. And I, to me, I was like, what does AR stand for? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we're going to have AR issues. We're going to ha- just, things are going to happen and we're sure. going to need cash. And so effectively what we did was, you know, we said, okay, here's the amount that we think we can comfortably get away with, um, to fund whatever, like our lifestyle at the time. And I mean, I was single. we were both single, um, so it wasn't like we had a house and card. Sure. Um, so uh, the 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 kind of growth then came from um, starting there to basically just little by little uh, getting to the point where you know we were we were able then to start distributing some extra cash out of the business based on um, you know key metrics that we had then come up with and you know we still do this to the, to this day you know we we keep pretty much our our philosophy to this day is still that we keep all of our cash in the business. And then we distribute only when we think it's like, it's a hundred percent okay to, um, mm. that's, you know, I mean, we, we, we do run a profitable business. It's not, you know, a huge, it's not like, you know, we can just take our whole profit out and just always, you know, rely yes. on future profits to cover um, for operating expenses. But um, I think for me personally, it's also been sort of a, an eye opener and a real learning experience um, over the last, I'll call it, you know, 10 years that, um, that I've been able to essentially um, see the sort of middle of the road um, where you, you are, you know, you, you have to be a little bit optimistic in the sense of um, you know, things will work out that, you know, you will get more clients. You can't always prepare for the absolute worst case right. because then you just, you never, you know, you then you can't take any money out of the business if you just look only absolute worst case. Um, but yeah, no, I think that was a, uh, to, to kind of bring this all to a, um, Back to the beginning, um, you know, I, I've grown a lot with with uh, with this business as well, and um, you know, I, I still have a lot to learn. Um, my wife and I just bought our first house, and so good for um, you. It's been another sort of journey, in, um, uh, and I, I think I've gone into this a whole lot more educated about yes. you know what the, you were talking about. How you know, like, hey, you buy a house, so you have to maintain it. Absolutely, you have to maintain it. <laughs> <laughs> you have to flourish, right. First of all, and um, you know, that's everything. I mean, I I was I was I felt like I was very prepared and I still got sticker shock when you know things like renovations and furnishings. Yes. And, um but I think I'm a whole lot better prepared for that because of because of the business and because you know I've seen the in the ups and downs and sort of erring on the side of and it's actually not even just erring on the side of caution. It's about placing a an estimate or like a realistic estimate on where do you think the where do you think this is actually going to go like best case it's here worst case it's there so it's probably not going to be best or worst case it's probably going to be somewhere in the middle um and we want to make sure that worst case doesn't mean that we have to you know close up shop um and you know for a business closing up shop is just you know that's that's fine um as a sort of person closing Mm -hmm. up shop you're out on the street and at this point you know got a wife um you know we're probably gonna have kids soon like you don't want to put your wife and kids on the street.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. It sounds like you're you're taking the exact right approach at, at a really young age to build a business because there's a lot of um, temptation when you start making money in the business to start spending those revenues and not leaving you know a significant portion in there for you know when times slow down or uh, unexpected expenses. Um, so it sounds like you're kind of applying that same philosophy to your personal life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's smart. Yeah, I'm curious here. Since you don't, you only take cash out when you really need. Are you paying yourself a salary? You do do like quarterly dividends, or how do you pay yourself?
0: So we actually still have a a quote. Uh, a, there was a point at which we actually transformed from a pure LLC to an S corporation. Sure. Uh, uh, and so at that point, we started paying ourselves. Uh, before that, we had just been drawing uh, member distributions. Yes. Uh, for living expenses, and we just had a certain amount. And in fact, I think that was actually there's actually made multiple years of just drawing member distributions um, for living expenses. Um, so after we start paying ourselves a salary um, as part of the S corp uh, restructuring, that salary is also that also hasn't changed since we st- since we started doing that. And so, um, I mean, it, again, it it sort of reflects on our conservative nature. Yes, uh, of financial planning is that you know we pay ourselves a salary. That's you know it gets us by you know I'm I'm not driving Ferraris um, and uh, you know we we I eat you up know, relatively sparsely um, I think my my probably my one big splurge is that I um, I joined a country club um, okay partially I mean it's actually in the IRS code as not being business deductible like but um, it's a very good it's actually been extremely um, not lucrative it's actually been very helpful for my business sure. for networking um, for reputation, um, and just, you know, knowing the business leaders uh, yep. and I'm also involved a little bit in the management of the club as well. I've gotten to know, you know, just to see how an organization like that is run. Um, cool to get a little exposure into that sort of stuff, which I'm, I'm just genuinely curious about. Um, so I think that's, but I mean, that's my one big splurge. Um, but other than that, you know, we still, we, we, we live below our means I'd say. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know the yes. The, obviously, if um, you know we have a really good year and we have um, uh, you know extra profit to distribute, oftentimes that just you know it it gets distributed. But we're literally reinvesting it back in, sure. in uh, other things. You know, I'm I'm certainly not. Uh, yeah, we bought a condo, but it's it's not you know at the top of the hill and overlooking the city. right. <laughs> exactly.
1: No, that's great. I'll I'll have to have you on, and we could talk more about personal finance. And maybe if you get into Um, investing, what your investing journey looks like there. I think that'd be fun. But before we get into the final round, the rapid fire round, I do have one question to ask around psychology. So everybody, when they're growing a business, they can go through like a darker stretch or a difficult time. Can you share with us like a difficult moment you faced and how you overcame it?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, So for us, uh, difficult times um, happen actually quite often. (laughs) <laughs> um, it's uh, it, it's actually kind of a psych- cyclical event where um, there's you can almost map it as like a um, there's like a uh, it's essentially like a repeatable curve, right? You've got mm-hmm. you a new client, everyone's really happy, everyone's excited. Yeah, you start the project. There actually there's for me it's like um, there's certain people, certain personality types that like dread the start of a project. Cause there's a lot to do. You get really, really anxious about and stressed out that there's so much to do. And then, you know, sort of like that becomes really stressful and it, it, it's it's a dark time. Like it not dark in the mm. sense of there's despair, but it's actually- kind of daunting. Ability. Yeah, it's daunting. You start to get the thing off the ground. You know, you start to see builds and everything seems like to be going really, really well. Um, and then sort of you ride this sort of crest where um, you get back to the point where everything is like great. And, uh, you know, the client's happy, they're seeing builds or like impressed. Um and then sort of delivery day comes, um, it comes and goes usually, and, you know, like something will happen, there'll be, um, unexpected difficulty, uh, scope creep, um, you know, something that, it, something that comes up and you sure. know, I can I literally go on and on about why that's happening. And then you sort of fall into this other pit on the other side where you're going like, client's pissed at me. Um, you know, delivery day is came and went, so we know, we we have no end in sight. We don't know how to fix these bugs. Um, and you know, you're you're sort of in a you know pit, and yes. you just have to work your way out of it. It's one one bug at a time, one um, sort of client request at a time. Um, you try to level with them, explain, um, mm-hmm. and then you kind of you know ultimately with so far with every client that that's happened with, um, thankfully, uh, you know you kind of climb out the other end, and and then you're sort of back in a good spot. But the question that you asked, I mean, yes, certainly some pits are deeper than others, and so sure. I could I tell you some projects where it was just so deep that you literally think, maybe this is it. Maybe this is what puts me in the ground. This is and- <laughs> going to shut me
1: down. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Um, but uh, no, I mean, it, it, thankfully, it hasn't happened yet. And um, sure. that's the, uh, it's, uh, but it is, it, it's cyclical. And um, you kind of know it's coming and you do the best you can to prepare, but it's still going to happen.
1: Yeah. Well, good for you. There's a, there's a pretty strong resilience in you to get to those moments and just know that, Hey, we've been here before. We're just going to climb ourselves right back out.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: great. All right. Now is the time where we're going to learn who Chow really is. If you could answer each question in 15 seconds or less. You ready? Sure. All right. All right. Favorite podcast? This one. <laughs> Have you listened to a few episodes?
0: No, no, no. no, no. Favorite podcast episode would be this one. Um, okay. I just because I've had a lot of fun recording this. Um, I, I don't know what fifteen seconds is. I have a friend um, uh, that does one about um, golf, uh, Get a nice. Grip podcast, um, if anyone wants to. It's, his name is Max. He's on the PGA Tour. It's good friend.
1: Nice. Good advice. I'll have to check it out. All right. What is a recent book you read and would recommend?
0: Um, recent book I read, I haven't read much. Um, I'll have to say, this has been a couple of years, but um, The Martian. Um, there was a movie obviously made of yeah, book, yep. it's fantastic, um, and I actually, I read the book first, um, th- that's, it, I almost didn't want to watch the movie because it was, it was so funny. <laughs> the movie did a fair job of capturing the humor, um, but the humor was exactly on point, like exactly what my type of humor is.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, good movie. In a lot of those books, of course, they are typically better than the movie, just the detail and the, yeah, the whole story all right speaking of that favorite movie
0: favorite movie of all time is Shawshank Redemption
1: really all right now we know who you are <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. one of my favorites that's a great movie all right favorite food
0: food um, my uh, I grew up eating my mom's uh, traditional Chinese cooking so it would have to be a, a nice bowl of noodles from my, from my mom
1: there you go all right how many hours do you work per week
0: Ooh, that's a good question. Um, it wildly varies. Uh, some weeks, it also varies depending on how you categorize work. Because for me, you know, being on podcasts and networking and stuff is, is. I mean, I'm technically... It's fun. It's, I don't feel like it's work, but I think you have to classify it as work. So sure. if it's not included, then, you know, as low as 30 40. Nice. Um, but if you include all of that, then I'm pretty much working all the time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right on. I get it. All right. How many hours do you sleep each night? Eight. Good for like you. Clockwork. Definitive. No hesitation. Eight. I like no it.
0: Hesitation. Eight like clockwork. My schedule is very, very regimented like
1: that. All right. Okay. This goes right into the next
0: question What's your workout regimen? A workout regimen. <laughs> um, Relatively non existent during COVID. But um, before COVID, uh, I try to play golf twice a week, nice. and um, I usually walk and carry my own bag while I'm doing so. So it's a decent workout. You know, it's not it is. Like cardio, but uh, it does. You know, six hours of walking carrying a 70 pound bag is. Nothing to Abs,
1: absolutely. I, I don't know the metrics there, but it's definitely, it's got to be 400 to 600 calories. I'd have to look in just for walking around for four hours. I was thinking, but yeah, like you said, six hours.
0: Yeah, I carry my bag, which is- Yeah.
1: Is. Adds on to it, right? All right. Here, here's a good question for you. If you could go back in time to give your younger self advice, what age would you visit? and What would you say?
0: The age would have to be- um, Actually, it would be uh, my senior year of, well, let's call it yeah, senior year of high school when I really started taking an interest in, um, in math and science. And the one thing I would say is don't change anything. Like the way you're going, the interest you have will serve you extremely well in life. Um, and don't get distracted by, you know, sports, by other possible interests. This is, this is, the, this is what you were meant for.
1: Awesome. Great advice. All right. I'm going to give it over to you. Where can the audience reach you? Uh,
0: so they, uh, they're welcome to reach out to me um, on LinkedIn. Uh, I think that's probably the best place. Um, they, I, we, uh, the, the Swenson He website, so S-W-E-N-S-O-N-H-E.com um, has our con- contact information on there as well. Um, or uh, yeah, just, uh, I mean, I'm on Twitter and Facebook, but probably LinkedIn is the best place. That's where awesome. I check.
1: Perfect. All right, Chow, this was great. Thanks a lot for your time.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This is really good. All right. Talk to you soon. See yeah.
1: Thanks for listening to the Payback Time podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please provide a review on iTunes. If you'd like to hear an interview from someone specific, please make a comment on the Payback Time Facebook page. If you're interested in becoming an affiliate and earning 30% reoccurring commission for simply sharing ticker, visit ticker.pro slash affiliates. Remember, this show is for entertainment purposes only. If you heard any stock mentioned on this podcast, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is copyright protected by payback time. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.
0: Don't believe in